0: It was was really traumatic because on on a good day, I felt like I couldn't be real. I must've made it all up. Like any other illness or condition, you get sick either gradually or quickly, and then you're at a plateau, and then you hopefully get better, or you get worse and, and you die. But this sort of like on again, off again was baffling. And it was like, it was so hard to explain to people.
1: Welcome back to the Pajama Interviews. I'm your host, Michelle Irving, and this is a podcast for women living with chronic illness. This week's guest is Sydney writer and author Ashley Calligan Blunt. Now, Ashley has had a big experience with chronic fatigue, and I know so many of you are living with chronic fatigue. So, in this conversation, we go deep not only into the experience and how to manage the experience of chronic illness but especially the conversation about the emotional impact of this invisible illness and now let's dive in with Ashley so welcome so much Ashley and thanks so much for chatting with us
0: thank you so much for having me Michelle. it's a pleasure to speak to you and your audience
1: I want to start first with, can you tell us firstly about your condition and how you came to be aware of it, what the experience was like for you?
0: Yes. So I had a very long experience of becoming ill because I had what's called insidious onset. And so basically I I have chronic fatigue syndrome and I started to get, I started to get days where it felt like I was coming down with a flu and I didn't have any symptoms necessarily. Maybe I had like a scratchy throat, but basically I just felt exhausted. And I felt like my body was saying like, I'm dealing with something. You've got to lie down. Like I can't cope with anything. And so I'd lie down for a day or a day and a half or sometimes two days. And then I'd feel fine. I'd often feel really good. And I was like, okay, great. Um, and I just go on with my life. And it, when it started in 2016, late 2016, there was enough people around who had colds or flus or whatever that i could right. sort of always explain it mm-hmm. but then um in 2017 early 2017 it started to become every two weeks that i would get i would lose at least a day and i started to think i looked around at other people in their early 30s and i thought wow like no one else i know is losing this much time to yeah. to fighting off colds and flus and never getting a cold or flu Uh, during that period. But I was doing, I was working, uh, not full time, but I was working quite a lot. And I was also doing a master's degree full time. And I was taking really good care of myself. Like I was exercising regularly. I was still seeing my friends. I was eating properly. Like I wasn't, you know, the the sort of stereotypical grad student, uh, you know, eating chips and staying up all night. Like I, I was always in bed by 10 30. I, that's all I always have been. but I just I thought okay it's clearly just the stress from working and trying to do the the degree and I was submitting the degree in April so I felt like okay I can I can make it through to April and then I'll feel much better then it that's this is the problem I'll feel fine and then in May after I'd submitted my thesis it just got worse it just got so much worse and I had a birthday party and I was finally seeing a lot of friends that I hadn't seen. Of course. very much while I was doing the degree. And so I'd invited everybody over and I got all this food. and got this big cake and I was really excited to celebrate. And, you know, people started showing up at about 7 PM. And by nine 30, I just, I was so sick. I, everybody had to leave. I was just like, I can't, like, I couldn't stand up. Um, so that's when I started going to the doctors and I knew, I knew it was going to be a long road with the doctors because my symptoms were so vague and there were, there were symptoms that I was having that I didn't realize until later were symptoms yeah Uh, but I don't know if they even want to help the doctors identify things so I had what's like what I now know is alcohol intolerance where I'd like have one drink and it felt like it had a glass of sand and I was just so parched I could drink a liter of water after that and just still feel incredibly parched and I honestly just thought like oh this is just you know I'm getting older I'm you know I'm in my 30s now I guess this is just what happens to some people but now I know that was part of what was going on. So the doctors started testing and they started at first kind of slowly, they picked a few conditions and they started testing for them. And then they would all come back fine. And like I said, you know, my symptoms were getting worse. I was spending more time in bed. I was working a nine to five office job and I was finding I would come home from work and just have to just sit, you know, on the couch and do nothing because I just, I was so tired and I was going to bed 7 PM some nights, but then also I was still having days where I felt really, really good. And so the doctors kept testing and they, you know, now it sort of expanded and they just started testing me for everything, but all the tests were coming back fine. Wow. And say, like I had specialists say to me, you know, on paper, you look perfectly healthy. And it wasn't that they were denying what I was experiencing. They were just saying like, there's nothing in here that is telling us what's going yeah. on. I had, I had really good doctors actually. And so it took six months because chronic fatigue syndrome is a diagnosis by exclusion. And my doctor wanted to get me in with an infectious disease specialist, which was quite tricky. So it took six months of of tests and, and doctors and I had everything. Like I had the full body CT scan. I had a brain MRI and they found absolutely nothing. And at that point, the infectious disease specialist formally diagnosed me with chronic fatigue syndrome and Uh, So I learned later that there's two ways that chronic fatigue syndrome can come on. It can come on sort of very quickly, like like a colder flu would, and you just get sick and then you're sick. Right. I had what's called insidious onset, which they told me is about 40% of cases of chronic fatigue syndrome, which is that sort of slow, sort of creeping, it's like the Jaws music sort of coming for you uh that pattern and so that went on almost for a year where it would get really bad and then i'd have some good days uh but then one day in september 2017 i just like i had that where i like i was like i have to lie down and it just never didn't stop after that it just in two weeks i might have one good day where i could get up and do some things but like i at that point was so sick i had to take medical leave from work And I was at the point where I couldn't get up off the couch or the bed a lot of the time. Like, I didn't have the strength to lift myself. So I had to uh, get my husband to help me.
1: And can you sort of share with us, there's a physical experience of illness and there's an emotional journey of illness, which is just as difficult. And I'm wondering that sort of feeling of being really well and then the fatigue coming again how were you managing emotionally this level of experience
0: it's I, particularly that year it was so confusing like in terms of the the narrative we think about with illness like any other illness or condition that I was aware of you you get sick either gradually or quickly yeah and then you either like sort of you're at a plateau and then you hopefully get better or you get worse and, and you die. But this sort of like on again, off again was, was baffling. And it was like, it was so hard to explain to people because when people saw me, I was obviously, it's still like this today. When people see me, I'm generally feeling good. I also get energy from talking with people. Like if I'm, you know, if I'm seeing friends and, and, you know, feeling good from talking to them. And so they don't see me when I, when I'm too tired to, sit up uh you know I even I had three days last weekend where again it was at the point where even just like I could get up and I could sit at the table and eat a meal but that was exhausting and all I could think about was going back and lying down so yeah yeah, emotionally it was it it was it was really traumatic because I I went on on a good day I felt like I couldn't be real I must have made it all up
1: yeah yeah I think this is really common, particularly for women with invisible illnesses as well. So I have a couple of conditions and I have vertigo. Mm. Um, so instead of my migraine, I get vertigo. But you can't see me having vertigo yes. um, except my shoulders come up around my ears. But I look well. Mm. I look incredibly well. And um, I think this is a really interesting conversation to have because I have this thing of like, well, it's nice that I look well, but then I have to explain or share or justify that I'm actually not well and that's exhausting and I don't want to do that. And one of the things I'm curious with about you is you've had this grad life, you've then gone on to employment, you've got all of this friends network and social world. How did you navigate that? not looking as sick as you are actually feeling
0: was well part of it was at first I didn't even really talk about it except that if I um had social plans I was I was canceling them and I was telling people like oh I just don't I don't feel well I'm not well enough to go out and that was fine but I for example, I was doing my thesis and I didn't wanna tell my supervisor that I wasn't well because I felt like it was just an excuse. Yeah. And, But I was really struggling with the thesis uh, to, a, to a degree that I, I wasn't even willing to acknowledge to myself. And then I, I'd sent her a draft to look at and she I got some really brutal feedback, which I was not accustomed to because normally I'm an excellent student. And I, I remember sitting there trying to work through a rewrite of the thesis, and I, I felt like I couldn't hold the concepts in my head. I felt like they were like sand, and I kept trying to, you know, I'm trying to combine these academic theories, and they were just slipping through my fingers, and... I, I realized looking back on it, that that was the fatigue that I was experiencing cognitive fatigue. But at the time, I just had no frame of reference for that. And I just felt like, oh, I wasn't concentrating hard enough. I wasn't working hard enough, like wh- whatever it was. So I never, I never mentioned it to my supervisor. And then later on, I, I actually, at the graduation ceremony, I told her as I, that I'd realized how sick I was becoming. And with my work, it was the same. I didn't mention to them for a long time, I I would I would be sitting there in the office and I would be trying to accomplish just basic things and if I had to change my screen so I had to go from my email to open a file for example yeah you know to make a change in a document I would click away from the email and in that space of time I would have forgotten what I was trying to do it's like walking into a room and forgetting why you've gone in there yeah and so I would just be sitting there at the desk just like randomly clicking things and realising that I couldn't accomplish anything. And now I've learned the term for that is presenteeism, when you're present but you're you're not accomplishing anything because you're not well enough to, um, as opposed to absenteeism. And, right. Yeah.
1: I sort of think of it that we often hear in the community of chronic, um, sorry, brain fog, which I just yes. had in that second. <laughs> um, and just that yes. sense, like, this is very familiar to me Uh, because there's that sense of my brain, I actually can't think, even though I'm right there sitting and looking at something. I haven't actually done anything hard or complex, but I can't hold the information with any clarity. And it's super frustrating and it also can feel like it's some sort of personal failing, as if there's something wrong with you. And I'm just wondering whether... You look exactly like that's an internal conversation you've had as well.
0: Well, I I mean, by the time it got really, really bad, I had been seeing the doctors and we knew it was probably something like chronic fatigue. Mm -hmm. But I got to the point where I was still going into work so at first I was still working my normal hours, but it would get to 3 p.m. And I knew I knew I was not like not going to accomplish anything after 3 p.m. most days. So I had to get as much done as I could before that, because from three to five, I would just sit there sort of looking yep. like I was working. But it got so bad that I lost the ability. I became illiterate, like functionally illiterate, because I I couldn't remember from the, the start of a sentence I couldn't hold what was at the start long enough to get to the end to put it together in a coherent way. So while I could read each individual word, I could get no sense from the sentence. And
1: let's just pause for a moment. I think it'd be good for our listeners to know what work were you doing?
0: Oh, okay. Time. So I, I was working um, for uh, the state writing organization, which is now called Writing New South Wales. Yeah. And basically I was the program administrator. So what what a large part of my role was programming our we run about or we did at the time 80 writing courses a year of in all kinds of creative writing, poetry, novels, right, nonfiction essays. And so I was I was administering that program. And but one of the, one of my responsibilities was answering the phone and and taking we have we are a membership based organization. So taking member details. So if someone would call to change their address or yeah. phone number. And I so people would call on the phone and I would have such a hard time Taking down their information, I at some points just like I'd be struggling to remember how to how to write the numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, I have really like visceral memories of just like that, like trying to tune out all the other noise in the office and just focus so hard on what on what they were saying. I had been offered a PhD scholarship after my masters, and just it just made me realize how much um, he, like health is a intelligence requires good health that you can't yeah. you can't perform at, at a cognitive level if you if your health isn't there
1: yeah and there's also that sense what I'm hearing is while there was this long onset there was actually loss there was actually this consistent sense of losing capacity that you previously had and that changes your idea of what you can be and do in the future as well, that there's a grief and a loss for things
0: over this time. It was very confusing because because it was inconsistent. Yeah. It wasn't like some days I go to work and it'd be fine and I could read my emails and I could answer the phone. Like it was it was it was never once once it came on. So, because of the because of the insidious onset, it was so inconsistent, and it's such a blurred time. And I had I had like I had really good days. The very very last thing I did before it came on full time was I had a friend visiting from Japan, and I took her for this three hour coast walk um, up in Sydney's northern beaches. And I and it was one of my favorite things to do. It was one of my favorite things to do. And I did that, and that was fine. Like we were able to do that. And then the next day I couldn't get out of bed. Um, but but because it had been so inconsistent. I didn't know that it was that it was here to stay. And so with my work, like the conversation kept being like, well, maybe I'll be okay in two weeks, maybe I'll be okay in three weeks. And they so they were sort of thinking, well, do we need to hire someone to, to take on parts of your role? And and how would we do that? Because if you're gonna be fine, and like I was like, maybe I'll we'll just go away. Like was, we yeah. still didn't even have there was there was about a two month gap between when it came on full time and I realized, okay, this is not this is not just gonna stop. And and when I actually was diagnosed, um, and I realized I realized just how long this was this was going to be.
1: And how did you find your workplace? Because obviously, this is a small environment, I imagine. And while you might have kept it to yourself for a while, there comes a time when you can't not speak about what's happening.
0: Yes, I think when I when I started not when I started seeing the doctors, but when it got to the point where I, I was losing significant time. And I was starting to call in sick more regularly because prior to that, I could sort of hold off to the weekend and then it'd crash over the weekend. But When it got to the point where I'd started calling in sick regularly, that's when I had to say to my my, um, employer uh, that there there was something going on. I didn't know what it was, Um, but they were, they were fantastic. It's a very small office. There was only seven of us working there at the time and they were, they were really wonderful. I mean, I hope that I'd been there a couple of years. I had a good relationship with them, but they were um they've been and they still are still I still work there they've been so flexible and so um you know willing to do what they could to keep me on the team and my husband actually after I got diagnosed my husband really wanted me to quit they want he he because um because it's a not-for-profit organization it's I mean the, the you know it's the pay isn't amazing yeah. you know as not-for-profit is it particularly in the arts but um it was a job that I, I really loved, and I, I was part of a community that meant a lot to me because because I'm a writer. And he really wanted me to quit because he felt that I should be focusing as much as I could on getting better. But I had had to give up everything else, like just yeah. one by one by one, I'd had to give up everything else I was doing, you know, because I used to be I'd been doing stand-up comedy regularly for a year and a half. And that was the first, that was the first thing I had to give up was because, and it was just, just really weird. It, this was very particular because I loved doing stand-up comedy. Even like I had, I had sets, I'd get up and do my five minutes and not a single person would laugh. And and it, it wasn't that I doubted the material because I'd done that same set, you know, the night before and, and people laughed. So I'd do, I'd do my five minutes. Nobody'd laugh. I'd get off the stage and I'd be like, well, I had a good time. look <laughs> like, I don't know about you guys, but like, I had fun. So I loved it. And then all of a sudden one day I just found myself like really not wanting to go out and do my set. And I was like, oh, this is really weird. Like normally I love this. And and then and and what I realized was it was my body being like, you don't have the energy to go out in the evening and 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 be in this loud environment with all these people. And you don't have the energy to memorize, you know, the, the your, your changes to your material. That's, you're asking too much of me and I can't, I cannot do this anymore. And so I went out a few times and tried to force my way through it and it obviously went terribly. And then I, and so that was the first thing I stopped. I was like, okay, well, I'll just wait till I get better. And then, when, you know, whenever we resolve this thing, I'll still start again. Um, but, and then I'd given up, you know, just other commitments I had to start culling So because my work was willing to let me just work two mornings a week, basically they brought in someone uh, to fill my role temporarily. And they said, if you could just come in a couple mornings a week and just support her, like make sure she's on track and work with her. um, Like we can make this work. And then, and then your job is there for you if you're, if you're able to come back. And so I really did not want to quit because I realized if I quit, it was like the last tent pole holding up my holding up any structure in my week. Otherwise I would just be home seven days a week, all my family's in Canada. Um, And I've got, I've got friends here in Sydney, but um, really the only person I'm really close to is my husband. And he was working, uh, he was working the equivalent of two full-time jobs because he had a full-time role. But then he'd also taken on this project he was offered. That he was really excited about, that like eventually did become his new full time role, but in the interim he had to do both at the same time, and that meant he was working up to fourteen hours a day, going in on the weekends. He was he was not around, and so if I if I gave up that job, I was going to be a hundred percent alone. And
1: what's interesting is that you were actually able to negotiate, and they were negotiating with you to keep you. That's what I'm hearing. That actually, it wasn't just you negotiating to keep your job; they were negotiating to keep you, which is extraordinary and beautiful.
0: It was. I was lucky because I had a. I have a. I had a very particular set of skills, like in terms of my background uh, in education, but also online teaching. Uh, so I like have experience in curriculum design and 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 delivering workshops online, and they were at that time looking to expand their courses into the online space which so good that we did that at that time because we were ready when COVID hit we we had built in a, an online component and then we just basically flipped everything to online so that it was good that we did that so I was I was lucky in that like I had something they wanted uh, that that motivated them um but also they were just you know lovely understanding people which I think makes a big difference as well like I think um Uh, It helped that I had skills that that, that were in demand, but they're also just lovely people.
1: And so you've had this experience, you get the diagnosis, you're also spending a lot of time at home lying down and your husband's working, and you also write two books. So so how does this all happen? (laughs) Like share with us the, the real raw truth of what did that actually mean for you?
0: So the writing is something I've been doing for a long time. And and people people say to me, actually, you know, I'll be talking about being sick. And they'll be like, yeah, but you, you wrote a book. And I was like, okay, wait, don't no, stop. Because books don't just... Don't just get written. That's right. Um, particularly when you're, you know, an emerging writer and you're new to writing and you're trying to figure out um, your writing. So it's a, it's a super long story, but the, the very condensed version is that um, I started writing a book in 2009 that was based on my great-grandparents' survival of the Armenian genocide, and it was a topic that I needed to research. And at that time, I was in Canada. I did a big research project with my family in Canada, and I went to the community where my dad grew up and interviewed all the community and... Um, Disgu- like learned learned the stories, but learned also how much had been lost in terms of their stories, and and that propelled me to go to Armenia. The thesis, the first thesis I wrote here in Sydney um, in 2011, was was connected to cultural identity in the Armenian community. So I'd start, so I'd started writing this book back
1: then. And so this is years and years before you were unwell. This is you at
0: your peak working. Exactly, exactly, and uh, so I, I was really s- striving to develop a writing practice at that time, and you know, it's—it's it's hard to put yourself out creatively and to do unpaid work and to not know if it's going and to, to not know if you're if you're talented enough or if you you know you have the capability to develop those skills. Uh, it, it's that's that's intense creative uncertainty, and I was also coping with anxiety at the time, um, so. like all of that was going on and but I kept pushing and I so I had a friend who was sort of wanting to do the same thing and we had this really lovely friendship where we would we said well we both want to do this so why don't we just get together we'll you know we'll set a certain amount of time we're gonna get together at a cafe or library for an hour or two hours and we eventually built it up three hours put our phones in our purses and just and just work on our projects and then and then we had each other to rely on And so once we'd done that for several months, I found that I could then, I was in getting into a good routine and I could just sit down at home and do it on my own without all that sort of mental uncertainty, um, you know, making it too difficult. So I'd been, I'd been building up that writing practice for, for years. And I'd had a couple um, short publications in literary journals that, um, you know, I was starting to build a portfolio. I had written two full manuscripts um, by that time. And I started, I started How to Be Australian in 2015. So that book I started uh, a couple of years before getting sick. And it was, I'm always working on multiple projects at once. I can never just work on one project. So I started that in 2015. Uh, I was working on something else. And then, and then I got into the second master's program, which was that one, the one I was in when I got ill and I was doing a master's of creative writing. And so they'd offered me, I had applied for this thinking, there's no way I'm going to get into this. And if I get in, there's no way I'm gonna get a scholarship and it was gonna be really expensive if I didn't. And then I got in, I got a scholarship. So I'd I'd applied with a very particular project, which was to write about um, this series of terrorist attacks that were connected to the Armenian genocide that happened in the 70s and 80s. They're connected to the denial of the genocide. They were an effort on behalf of um, certain Armenian terrorist groups to get the Turkish government to acknowledge the denial and acknowledge the history. And they were doing that by attacking dir- Turkish diplomats all over the world because they wanted to they, gain international attention. And one of those attacks was here in Sydney in 1980. So I I wrote for the master's degree, I wrote uh, a creative project that um, was about, uh, written from the point of view of one of those terrorists. Uh, and it imagines, you know, he, he's a fictional person, but it imagines like what it would have been like to, to be that terrorist. And so, That's, you know, that's a 12,000 word project. It's a very short project. Like our standard novel is going to be about 80,000 words. So I'd I'd written this, I'd written this, I'd written this book, you know, the first draft was 200,000 words and then every draft cut down and turned down until it was 75,000 words. I was shopping it around to publishers, but I just like, even though I got good feedback on it, there just wasn't, there wasn't a market for that book. So I, did, I did, did that project. And then, um, so I had, then I had this 12,000 word story that I was like, okay, what am I, it, that was great that I got the master's degree, but it's like, what am I going to do with that? And so that was sort of sitting there. And then I had been kind of working on this a little bit just on the side, because it was fun. Like this, this you know, the one is about genocide. It's really dark, it's really serious. And you can see by the cover, it's like, this is a dark, serious literary yeah. book. And then this book is like, at that time, I was using the stand-up comedy to sort of fuel the writing of this book, which was supposed to be very humorous. Uh, Because I was experimenting, I was trying to see like, well, what kind of writer am I going to be? Like, I, you know, I, I didn't know if I was even going to write fiction or nonfiction or like, I just knew it wasn't going to be poetry. I knew that. So, um, so this, this was all happening over years and in tandem. And then, but when I got sick, I, everything slowed. Like I said, like I said, like there was, there was a few months, there was a few months where I was just, I couldn't do anything because I was just, like I said, I was illiterate and, uh, it's just everything like brushing my teeth was, was, yeah. was a challenge. But once I got to the point where, you know, I, at that point, everything in my life had stopped other than a few hours at work every week. And, um, and maybe, you know, maybe a, a friend would pop over once or twice, but other than that, my week was, was totally empty. And most of that was spent in bed. But when I had a pocket of 15 minutes or 30 minutes where I felt okay, well, I had these t- Projects that were on the go, and that it was just a delight to be able to sit down and engage in them. And because I'd already developed a a writing practice and I'd already had a few publications, I was just, I just, it was one of the few times where I felt like myself. Yeah. And so I kept, and so I was able to keep going because it was one of the few things I could do at home in the quiet. Like I didn't need anyone or anything else. I just had these projects and I kept going with them. So, so this one, like, as I said, the, the, this is fiction. It's a, it's the novella, the 12,000 word novella, and then a collection of, of three essays. And so there was an opportunity to enter the novella in a, in a competition and um, the competition encouraged you to write an essay about the writing of, and I was like, oh, this is great. Cause I've got a lot to say about the writing of this. And so I wrote just you know, a five thousand word essay, and I entered that in with the novella. And so it ended up winning um, it was a sh- it was a, it was a finalist. and that meant that it was published digitally. But then the publisher came to me and she said, "Look, I'd love to publish this. I'd love to publish this as a book. It's not long enough to have a spine. Do you have any more essays? Or or other works that, that would that would sit with it?" And I said, "Oh, well, I've got these two previous publications, like from before I was ill. So, I so we just combined all of that, and then the publisher did a fantastic job. Uh, She included um, a lot of my photos from when I was in Armenia. So like those, these are Armenian dancers on a a, it's it's a gravel soccer pitch at one of the schools I visited. Um, So the publisher did an incredible job, but you can see it's a very skinny little book, and um, most of it was written really before I got sick. So that came out in 2019, which was just a real joy. Like we had a, we had a book launch and after my wedding, it was just one of the absolute best days of my life. And it was wonderful because at that point I'd been in Australia eight years and, you know, we had a hundred people attend the book launch and like all every single one of them, other than my husband, every single one of them were people that I'd met since, you know, since we're arriving in Australia and you know, my, everyone from my work was there and, um, And from the Armenian. Well enough. You were well enough to go to your own book launch. Yeah, by 2019, it this was like April 2019. Uh yes, it was a wonderful. And I had to say it was like anything like that. I said I had to clear the week, but it was I felt um, at at the book launch, I felt amazing. Afterwards I felt terrible, but it was it was very much worth it.
1: And I think this is one of the conversations that you and I have had as well, Um, including today we had this conversation over Twitter about managing capacity and this equation of if I want to do something, then I have to work out what the cost of that is going to be or what the price is going to be. And as much as it would be lovely to be able to do everything I've sort of learned that that just is part of the practicality of living with chronic illness and you sort of work out, well, I'm prepared to pay three days in bed to have this one moment and it feels to me like that's often connected to our identity and you've you've touched on this, this notion that writing was the one place you felt you were connected to the fullness of your identity and I'm wondering if there's anything else you would like to share with people Because you've spent time thinking about this process, identity, the illness before, now. What sort of thoughts and, yeah, consequences or helpful tips you would have for people going through a transition in their identity?
0: I guess that was the one thing for me, I felt really lucky because, as I said, I'd been I had a series of years where I'd gradually committed more and more and more to the, to the writing practice and to the idea of myself as a writer, which was terrifying, It was terrifying to do that. And for example, I'd been, I'd had a, I'd had a, a a different job that had nothing to do with writing and I left it to work for the Writer center, which meant taking a 50% pay cut, but I was willing to do that. I mean, I, I was lucky enough that I was able to do that because my husband has a good job. Um, so I was able to do that because um, I, I just I knew I wanted to commit to the writing community and I and to to my future as a writer. So when I got sick, I already had that writing practice. And the one thing about that, you know, getting sick really made me realize if if I can if I can't do anything else, I know I want to do the writing. And that yes. was that was so reassuring was to know that that actually that was the one thing that really, really mattered to me. And, and that I was still able to do that. And even though I lost so much, so much else, like, like the ability to go, you know, for a hike, you know, I live in a city that's full of gorgeous, like coastal hiking trails. And I can't, can't go any of them. And we live, you know, close to the blue mountains and I can't go and do any of the hikes there, but like, so like so, so much, but I could still do the writing. And
1: And did the illness change your sense of um, in any way, the sense of you as a writer? Because I want to, you know, we're going to share also the things that you've written about also include writing about chronic illness and very Mm -hmm. personal stories.
0: Well, so it's interesting with this book because, as I said, I was doing stand-up comedy and I was um, writing this book that I intended to be, the original idea was it was going to be a collection of humorous essays, each around a topic related to, you know, Australia and things I'd learned about Australia as an outsider. And this is
1: your second book that we're talking about now. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. Well, my second published book, because I've written about five manuscripts, but this is the second published book, which came out in June 2020 and it's called how to be
1: an Australian
0: yeah and so actually here I'll show you um so I I had written I had I had a lot of writing I'd already done like I'd done a partial mentorship with a with a humor writer here in Australia and I I had all this material and I had just sort of started shaping it and experimenting. And one of the things that I'd realized was that the, the idea of the collection of essays wasn't going to work. It was going to be a much stronger book if it had a chronological story that sort of pulled the reader through it. So we, so I sort of re-envisioned it and started with like, you know, day one, we arrived in Australia, what's it like? Um, and so when I got sick, I had all this, this humorous material that I'd been collecting and we'd been working with and experimenting with, but then when I came back to it, and as I got back into the writing, you know, I could do these little bits of time. And at first, it was only a few times a week, and then it built up and built up and built up. And I was using um, sort of a, a, a structured approach to building up my capacity that uh, that the doctors had, had given me and taught me how to do. And what I found was I just, the humor was not there. Like, I just, and all, all the humor in this book, like, 90% of the humor that's in the book now was written before I got sick. Yeah. What I wrote after getting sick is the is the emotional core of the book. That's when the book started to take on this emotional depth which is, you know, about about um, sort of moving from what's called the odyssey phase in, in life, which is when you, so you, you graduate from from university, or you finish your schooling, and you've got these like beautiful, wonderful years of like being an adult, but you don't quite have the responsibilities of a, an adult yet. Like if you're not married and you don't have kids, and maybe you're not committed to a serious career at that point, but you've got this incredible freedom. And I, I that was... I had waited for that. I did not enjoy being a child. I wanted to be an adult so badly. And then as soon as I graduated from university, I, I moved to South Korea. I started to move to Spain, ended up in South Korea. That's a different story. <laughs> Spent a year in South Korea. I went and volunteered in Peru for six months and traveled around South America. I traveled around Southeast Asia. And I went and lived in Mexico and worked for a year and I loved it. But then I had the opportunity to get married to someone I really, really loved and he, He had a very serious career. So I managed to me eight years, but I convinced him to move with me to Australia, and I said, like, okay, like, we can get married, we can do the adult thing, but, like, let's – I just need you to experience life outside of Canada for, like, one year, and then then after you've done that, if you want, we can move back to Canada and we'll figure things out from there.
1: So all of the part of the book that covers this you had written before you became unwell.
0: Well, I had written – Oh, no, actually, I'd, most of what I've written about was just comedic things about Australia, like about, oh. um, like, they've got these, um, they call them biscuits, they've got these cookies called Ice Bobo, and they look like, <laughs> they look like a woman's private parts, like, the got, like it's like this mm. pink icing with, like, <laughs> like shredded coconut, just, and like, that's to me, I'm like, that's the first thing I think of when I look at these, I'm like, and then you name them Ice Bobos, I'm like, <laughs> what are you of my childhood. Cookies, like that
1: is, these are the most favorite thing that my five year old self loves and loves. So I'm really getting a feel for the outsider perspective on Australian culture.
0: Yeah, there's so much of that kind of stuff in the book. Like, there's so much of that. Or the fact that, like, kookaburras has, have been used in Hollywood movies um, as the soundtrack for monkeys because some Hollywood producer back in the 30s, it turns out, decided that kookaburras sound more like monkeys than monkeys actually do. Um, so just all kinds of random stuff like that. So that was all written before I got sick. But then after I got sick, it was writing about how I felt like when we, we moved here for a year and that first year was, was great. But then it was like, when my husband said like, I've got a really good job here and we both really like it here. Why don't we stay for a while? Like this open-ended, yeah. let's just, you know, I'll, I, I can get a work visa through my work. That's for four years. Let's just see what happens. And I realized, oh, okay, this is this is adult life. As you as you make these compromises, like we're staying here for his career, which was fine, but it meant that I had to sort of I had no I had no control. And all of a sudden, I was like, I'd finish that master's degree. I had no job. the The career that I thought would, um, uh, you know, develop from that master's c- c- degree was that was I was totally wrong about that. So I had no career prospects at that time. And 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 then it's there's this vacuum in my life now. I'd been this traveler. I'd lived all over the world, and now I'm like, I'm like, well, I like Sydney, but I, I like I don't have a I don't have a life here. Like I've explored everything. I've done all the tourist stuff. Like, and now I'm just sort of sitting here. And so into that vacuum, just anxiety, just like all of a sudden, my like I was just I just my anxiety started to start to spiral and get really bad. And so I hadn't intended to include and then what does that mean for your marriage like what is that what is that what is that that, how does that affect the marriage when when you've got one person who's got a great career path and and prospects and and is is perfectly happy to to to, to, to take that year by year and you've got someone else who's just sort of spiraling and being like i don't know what i'm doing with myself all i know is that i'm trapped here and it's not that i want to leave but it's also not that i want to stay so i had not planned to put any of that in this book right but that became the core of the book because, and I think because at that time I was coping with, with challenges in the marriage. And so it, it funneled, all that emotion funneled its way into the book. So the book is on the surface, a very, very funny book about an outsider's perspective on Australia and how I think ice bobos are inappropriate, but, but okay. at, at, its, at its core... It's about being being young, being a young adult and and coping with what that means and being married and um, making decisions, um, you know, in an adult way and, and coping with mental illness. And then you've t- talked
1: about this and you've written about it and I think it would be beautiful to explore here for our listeners as well. Uh, the marriage was something that was complex and the illness came along. So I'm wondering... Were you? You've you know you've talked about actually what was going on for you and how do how do you manage somebody having a career in bloom, and the other person having the actually it's a struggle to work out who I am in this moment and at this time, and you have to work out your own life in that while somebody else is blooming. Like none of that is easy. So how did you work through that?
0: Well, I think I mean my husband and I are very different people. He's, he's an accountant Oh, he was an accountant and he was an accountant for, you know, up until very recently. So for a long time, you know, about 20 years as an accountant and um, we, we love each other very much, but we're, uh, he comes from a family and, a, and a, a family culture where you don't talk about emotions. Like he's very English in that sense. Right. Like i very Australian as well. Like you, you know, like you, it's just like, just just pretend all that stuff doesn't exist. Yeah. And I I come from a, a family that's a, a lot more emotive and expressive, and and also just as an individual, I'm just someone who like talks about emotions a lot and has a lot of emotions, has a lot of big emotions. All they're always happening all the time. So so we had those differences, but I think you know our 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 differences had been building up, and you know sort of those cracks were starting to spread. But because we've been so busy, like once I I had, you know, sort of started to figure my career thing out. And 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 Steve is wonderful. He he encouraged me to lean into the writing. He said, well, You've got this time, you want to write this book, just do it. And so it actually, like in you know, in 2012, I was like sent me off to Armenia on my own for two months so I could do my research and yeah. like like funded that and he um, was very, very supportive of 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 everything. What had happened was we had both been applying to um, postgraduate programs for a few years. And um, it happened that we both got accepted and both got into master's programs with scholarships at the same time. And he he was working full-time and doing his program full-time. I was doing my program full-time and working part-time. And we knew we were like, okay, when it started, we were like, all right, this this is gonna be really hard two years, but we're just gonna push through it. And um, when it's done, we will then make sure to take some time to reconnect and and do more fun things together and take more time off together. But we knew we were going to have two years that were going to be very, very intense.
1: So what I'm hearing in that is you said we're actually two individuals. We both have aspirations from our individual self and we're going to make an agreement about how we're going to manage this next two years of time while we each pursue our individual goals.
0: Mm -hmm. Is that,
1: is that an accurate summary?
0: Yes, absolutely. So, and we did, and we did, and we were, we were, you know, good partners in that. There was a lot of stress, but we were, we were good partners until I started to get really sick. And unfortunately that in 2017, when things got worse and worse and worse, he was, his program was incredibly stressful and he struggled to cope. I think because he didn't anticipate the ways it would be stressful, because it wasn't just stressful because of the workload; it was stressful because of personalities and expectations. Right, and um, so, so he was he was under a lot of stress. Like he, his 40th birthday happened during that time, and I just like his skin just started to turn gray from the stress. And I had said, like, my program wraps up in April, yours ends in October. I will, you know, I need a lot of help now but i will be there for you and i will make sure that i get you through the end of your program and particularly september and october were going to be quite difficult months for him and of course that is when i got so sick that i like couldn't function and i think like in some ways he was really great about it because he 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 never complained um he never you know he encouraged me to leave my job so that i could focus on my health uh, he never complained about having to take on the, the you know 100% of the financial burden he paid all the bills he did all the chores he did all the cooking like in a lot of ways he was wonderful but he would not talk to me about being ill right he didn't he came to only a couple of my doctor's appointments one of the appointments he came to was with the infectious disease specialist who said you know it's, we've got chronic fatigue syndrome. That's the only explanation for this. And he said, generally, it lasts three to five years. It could be 10 at the outset. And we walked out of that appointment and Steve went, isn't that great? You're going to get better.
1: Wow. So you heard completely different things in that appointment. It was Um, like he
0: skipped over everything I was going to have to go through.
1: Yeah. And that, for me um brings up the notion of being unseen in your actual lived experience and that in itself is stressful and distressing
0: yeah yeah and I could not convey that to him he just was not willing to hear that and and he kept telling me well you just got to be positive you're just going to have to get through it wow
1: Yeah and how did that make you feel like these that starts to widen the gap like i can see then okay this illness is physically demanding it is personally emotionally demanding and we are not on the same playbook in our marriage agreements about what this actually means
0: and i had like i mean my i had i could call my parents via skype Um, And had a couple of close friends I could call, but the time difference between Australia and Canada is quite difficult. And, and also when people can't be there, like, I think I would have had a different relationship with my parents in terms of like coping with the illness if they had been here because they were far away and they couldn't do anything. I didn't want to burden them like unnecessarily. Like I told them what was happening and I was honest, but I didn't tell them how hard like certain aspects of it were like, like that aspect, like, yeah. And I knew it could have been worse. Like, I'm very grateful for everything that Steve did do. But I, I, like, things started to get bad. Things started to get really bad because, A, like, he wasn't here. And he could have been, he could have physically been here more because he could have, like, in the evenings, come home and worked from home instead of choosing to stay at the office. But I saw that as, like, he just didn't want to deal with me. Yeah, And so I was alone from when he left, you know, 8.30 in the morning till 9.30 at night when he came home. And I just, I, I, I told him, I'm like, I cannot cope with being alone this much, but he wouldn't come, he would not come home earlier. And there were times where like I, I would call him and I think it was hard for him because one day I would be too tired to get up and I would need help getting up. And he'd sort of act like, I was burdening him by asking him for help, like yes. getting up from bed. And, but I, I, I was like, I know like the day before I'd been able to get up on my own, like very slowly and difficultly, but I could do it. So like, like the inconsistency did not help because I think if it had been the same every day, he would have just been like, okay, this is what I it's need the to routine. Do. Yes. But because it was up and down, I, like, I don't think he actually thought I was exaggerating my symptoms. Yeah, But I think he just, maybe he wished that I was because then I could just stop it.
1: And I think there's something about the invisibleness of it, that there's no sign to him of the difference. Um, And I would like to pause in this moment because I think this will be really useful for people listening. One of the things I found for myself is you can't see the vertigo, but there's a particular type on the day where there's a vertigo caused by something else, when my eye movement changes. And on those days, Cliff can tell that I've got vertigo. Interesting. And on the other days, it, 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 the vertigo comes with two different conditions. One's with comes through your ears, mm-hmm. which is benign with crystals in your ears, and the other one comes as a result of the migraine. But I found freedom in at least on some days he got a physical sign and could see how dramatic it was by watching my eye movement. So I found that really liberating um, because there was validation. He could actually see it. On the other days when it's caused by a migraine, you can't see it, but he had some sense. And so there is something about the invisibleness of nobody actually being in your body and having the feeling and you are trying to, minimalise it to the best of your capacity and only ask for help in the most extreme cases. And that's what I'm hearing was going on, not just for you personally, but in the marriage with all of the pressure that was building and building through the marriage. So where did that all go
0: for you, Ashley? It got really bad. It got to the point where when he did come home, I would use all the energy I had and several days worth of energy and we'd just often be fighting we just and I like my emotions would get worked up and all of a sudden then I had energy because I was so worked up because i was so mad and I just kept trying to get through to him like just how much I was suffering and how much he was aggravating it and if he could only just like And like, I felt like I was not asking for a lot. Like, I just wanted him to come and sit with me and acknowledge what I was going through. Like, it's great that you're doing the dishes and you're getting the groceries and all that stuff. Like, that's fantastic. But actually, like, don't do that for a day or two. I don't care. Just please come and sit with me and just be with me because I'm just suffering. And when you brought up grief earlier and I just felt like that all went completely unacknowledged. And I just found that just, it was like living with a robot and I just, I couldn't bear it. And I got to the point where if I had been well enough to leave, I would have left. Yeah. But at that point, I, I couldn't even, there was no way I could fly as far as Canada, even if I had made the decision to actually go home and stay with my parents. I, I couldn't physically get there. Yeah. And also I would have no money. Yeah. Um, but... I also knew that if I was well enough to be working and to be living my life, things would not be that bad. So then it kept going in this cycle of like, well, it's my fault because I'm ill, but that's not actually my fault. So he needs to do something because I can't do anything. And then i try to explain that to him and I'd start off trying to explain it rationally and then, you know, just so.
1: And he's got his list of all the things that he's doing and the way he's showing love. And it's like you're yelling at each other but nobody can actually hear the two hearts in their vulnerability because you're each in your own vulnerability.
0: Well, and he would just, he would just shut down and stop talking. Yeah. That was, that was generally, um, you know, and that had happened in previously in arguments. That wasn't a new thing. It just like, it was just, everything was so exacerbated. It was so bad. Um, so we got to the point where I said like, look, we have to, we have to go to counseling because like, what else can we do here? And I'd say so there were been times before I'd sort of thought, you know, I'd propose like, oh, maybe we should do something like that. Because I'd seen, I'd seen all kinds of, you know, counselors and um, psychologists for anxiety and depression previously in my life. Um, whereas he had never done anything like that. And I knew it was, it had gotten very bad because he, he agreed. He was like, yeah, we should, we we'll, yeah, that's fine. If you want to set that up, we can go do that. And so um, I was lucky again at that point, I was well enough to go and, you know, we were going once every two weeks for an hour so I could, I could go and it, even I had, um, i explained my condition to the counselors, the counseling office, and they had said that they would waive their normal, like normally you need 48 hours to, to cancel. And oh, they said great. Flexible with that.
1: Um, so this is so wonderful that even in that time, you still took the risk of telling people. One, because it was necessary, but you took the vulnerability to tell people as well.
0: Well, mostly because I wasn't willing to lose that money. I was like, "This is expensive, yeah. and I'm yeah. not, I'm not willing to lose this money." And they, again, they were very good about it. Um, so, uh, and I think maybe, maybe there was one time where I actually had, sure. to, had to cancel last minute. But um, so, so the the you know just having the space to talk you know with with like sort of a referee there just changed the dynamic a lot and it that helped so much but also they gave us a lot of tools and i mean it was it was hard work because we had to we had to learn these tools and learn how to use them with each other and um and you know steve finds and because of his upbringing he finds talking about anything emotional exhausting so he there was he could only his tolerance was very low we could only do so much and then that was kind of it for him and then we have to wait a few days before we could try to do anything else so it took some time so and it wasn't like i was it wasn't like there was like a moment where we were like oh okay like that's that's we can now things are better, but it was just gradually like looking back over months, you'd be like, Oh, things. Have, and it was sort of the same as with the illness. You'd look back over several months and be like, oh, okay. Like I can see the progress I've made here. Like I actually am getting better. It's just so it's like a tree growing so slow. Um, so, but I think one of the most valuable things that the counselor said to me was that um, some people use work as a safety blanket and that like, that's how they process their grief is they go to work because it's a safe space for them. And that made me realize that like, that made me able to forgive Steve for all that time. Um, because he, like, I I realized that I'd just been looking at it through my perspective where I would not, I would never use work in that way, but I could, I realized that she was, you know, that was what he had been doing. And so that didn't make it okay, but it made it forgivable.
1: And were there anything in particular um, now, how would you describe your relationship firstly? Like how, what is the process been like then now for you? What's the outcome?
0: It's, it's so much better. It's amazing I, because I didn't, when we went to the counselling, I did not believe the counselling could make our relationship better than it had been before I got sick. I was just hoping the counseling would sort of be like a band-aid that would get us through the worst of the illness. And then as I could return to the person I had been before, because Steve and I lost a lot of, a lot of the things that he and I had done together that sort of made our relationship good, like going hiking, for example, all of a sudden he had lost the person that, you know, he did those things with. And so our relationship was like, our relationship just was like, maintaining the household like there was nothing else and we'd been in a public speaking club that we had co-run and that was again one of the things that I had to quit very soon so he'd been going on his own for a while and so I he would sort of tell me about things that were happening there but I couldn't be involved at all and um so I was just hoping we could just get through this and then get back to to normal but actually it, it was so good that we uh took the time to learn these tools and to learn to interact with each other differently and to better understand each other's underlying psychology. Um, Because now our marriage is just so much better. It's just such a relief. It's just such a relief. Like it just, um, and when we have problems, we, we can work through them. We're so much better at just actually talking about what the problem really is instead of talking about, how we personally feel offended by the problem. Um, So it's been really, really good. It's been, and it's been such a relief because I still like, I still am home a lot. I still, you know, I can see friends more often now, but it's still, nothing like I used to be out all the time. Like I used to be out four or five nights a week, yeah. and and Steve had, and that was another factor. Was that Steve is he's a very introverted person. He works very hard. He likes to come home and unwind by himself. He doesn't need a lot of socializing, and so that worked well for us because I was I was out. I was doing my things. I was with my friends. I was you know going to um, uh, writing events and book launches and doing my stand up comedy. And he had his time alone to unwind, and then all of a sudden, he has this sick, unhappy person in the house all the time. All the time. So, and I and I acknowledge that I knew that, um, but now I mean, it's still it's still very rare that I go out without him. Like in a in a good period, it's maybe once a week. Mm. Uh, so, and, and I try, and I try to if I can, so he can have that downtime. But it's like even though I'm here a lot, and we're you know we live in a one bedroom. tiny apartment in in urban sydney like we don't have a lot of space there's there's like one door he can close basically unless he's in the bathroom there's like one door that can separate us so um but it's so much better now it's so it's it's it really surprised me how much better it got and
1: what i'm really hearing is that It feels like the illness, as difficult and as complex as it was, it made you, it compounded things, but it also made you face things that were already in the relationship that potentially over time, even if it took longer time, would still rise. Like communication styles is a pretty fundamental thing in any relationship. I'm wondering, are there other things that you would now say, while nobody would wish to be ill Perhaps there are things that you feel it did bring you in your own personal strength and development.
0: Yeah, what you said is absolutely true. I think probably we would have been pushed to that point at, in our marriage at some point, and 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 this was um, just was just the, the thing that that made it like it turned it into a crisis. And I'm like, as I've said, I wish we I wish we'd done that years before. But we probably wouldn't have because we our lives were full and we were busy and we could just, you know, kind of ignore things. Um, and I, I also want to add, we did not spend... I said it was a, the counselling was expensive, but we did not actually spend a whole lot of money on counselling. We went through a Relationships Australia, which is government subsidised, so that that helped keep it more affordable. And also, we didn't really have that many appointments. We went maybe, maybe eight to ten times the first year. So it, it wasn't like we were going you know, even every, every, it was once a month really. And, but we, but we were very serious about, you know, when they recommended books or or websites or different tools um, I spent a lot of time working through them. And then I took what was useful. And then I, I asked Steve to work through them with me and he was good about that. So we, we took that very seriously. Um, but in terms of other things that, I mean, the, the two key things really were, were, addressing the, the problems in the marriage and, and, and realizing how much better things could be once they were addressed and, and, and valuing my identity as a writer and realizing mm-hmm. how important that is to me, how healing that is for me. I had a couple months um, recently where I, my, so my work hours have gradually, gradually, gradually increased and then they got a little bit too much. I was up to 15 hours a week And and I have the complete flexibility to do that during the week when it suits me, which is the best thing I could possibly ask for. But and when I'm doing well, that's fine. But I have had I had a few too many months last year where I was not doing well and that was too hard. And so because of because I had that commitment, though, I stopped doing everything else again. And so I stopped I stopped writing and and that just made me miserable, and it made me feel disconnected from who I am, and it made it just like it wasn't worth it. So I've actually this year I've asked to reduce my work hours again, and um, uh, you know, had like because we're a small organization, like it's a it's a big deal, and it, it, like involves a lot of upheaval for a lot of other people. But we're going through that process because I I just I just can't um, I'm just not well enough to to take on that much. And you've got clarity. What I'm hearing is that illness
1: provided not just context to get real and raw about things that were under the surface, it also brought you into very sharp focus and clarity about what was important to you. Even if you had limited capacity, this is what you were going to put your energy into.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, and th- and that it and that it was rewarding for me to do so, but that was that I had made, the right choice I had been honest with what I with what really mattered to me and so that was that was really reassuring and then I guess the other thing is just that you know I've had to say no to so many things and that's something still I think I'll always be working on because I want I want to say yes to things I really do like I wish I didn't have to go to my work and and make everything more difficult for everybody else but I I I had to do that there. I just had no options. So I've gotten a lot better at at being more firm about my boundaries and about saying no to things. And, and I, I, I think that even, even if I magically get fully well, again, at some point in my life, I think I, I will still have that skill and I will still have the confidence to do that.
1: Thank you so much. I mean, that's so rich what you've shared and it's so honest what you've shared and You've really revealed what's in your heart and I want to personally just say to you that's so nourishing for all the women who are perhaps lying in bed listening to this process and to hear that you found a way through for yourself and we haven't glossed over it and it's not pink fluffy clouds and rainbows and everything's cured. No, no. But you found some parts of you that can move with the illness and still flourish. And I always um, I love that final point that you're sharing about the no and having to say no. For me, I think illness, it will teach you badass boundaries very quickly. <laughs> it's a life skill, but you will learn critically how to set a boundary because you cannot move into your own well-being even with a limited sphere, without having super good boundaries and it's a necessary part of your own well-being. And I love to hear that while it's been a struggle, it's something that you've identified as an actual win in the process of being unwell. Definitely.
0: And I think one other thing is that I've actually met really amazing people and been able to connect with people differently because once you've had this experience and, you know, Every illness is unique, but at the same time, there's a lot of commonalities. So I've actually, you know, become really good friends with uh, another writer I know who has chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, which is a rare um, version of Gillian-Barr syndrome. And uh, so he and I host this podcast together now where we've started interviewing writers uh, and other creatives about uh about health and we interpret health really broadly so we've interpreted it in terms of things like um, intergenerational trauma for example but we've also interviewed people with postnatal anxiety and um, uh, we just did a fascinating interview with someone who has vulvodynia which is just very intense chronic pain that can last like in her case has lasted for years and she's just come out with a debut novel um, fictionalizing some of her experiences and, and looking at also the history of that condition and for example, how it was treated for women in the late 1800s, which was brutal. So, um, like just being able to have those conversations on a really intimate level, I don't, I don't think I ever would have, you know, ended up pursuing a project like that as, as a healthy person. And and it's just it's introduced me to amazing people, and and allowed me to connect with them in a really personal way.
1: Yeah, I feel the same. I feel like we come into these discussions no matter what the condition. We have a shared heart and we have a shared language and we can shortcut things with each other. And there's all of these vibrant, beautiful, amazing women and we don't have to be in silence and we don't have to be isolated. And this project for me is about making that much more visible with each other but also that we have an honest conversation about the difficulty and the things that come through it that actually are part of our strength. I'm going to put in all of our show notes. You'll be able to find links to Ashley's books, to the podcast She and James Run, which is called Stay at Home, and everything else that you can go and learn about her on her website. Thank you so very much for sharing with us, Ashley. We really appreciate it and we wish you continued flourishing and well-being in the ways that work for
0: you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about these things, Michelle. It really makes a difference.